day, everyone. I'm Dr. Tad Schnaufer here with the Global and National Security Institute at the University of South Florida. Welcome to a new podcast by GNSI called What's Really Happening? I'm here with GNSI Executive Director, General Frank McKenzie, who will join us for every episode of What's Really Happening as we explore urgent security issues that face the globe. Drawing on his unique experience of over 42 years in the United States Marine Corps serving as an officer, all the way up to the commander of the United States Central Command, where he oversaw military operations throughout the greater Middle East. What's really happening will take you behind the headlines and provide you insight from a senior leader who's been in the room where decisions have been made that have changed history. Today, we're going to discuss use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield, or at least the possible use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield. President Vladimir Putin of Russia has threatened to use nuclear weapons throughout the Ukraine crisis. Recently, Russia has moved nuclear weapons to Belarus, and Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko stated, God forbid, I have to make the decision to use these weapons today, but there will be no hesitation should we face aggression. He would later comment that nuclear weapons are weapons too, implying that they're no different than conventional bombs. Given these brash statements and provocative posturing of Russia and Belarus, General, what's really happening with these nuclear threats? Tad, let me begin by breaking down the difference between tactical and strategic nuclear sure. weapons. I think most people know what a strategic nuclear weapon is. That's our Minuteman missiles. Those are our Poseidon missiles that are mm-hmm. carried on our Trident submarines. And they're the bombs that are delivered by our uh, B-1, or correct, our B-2 aircraft mm-hmm. that could fly if needed, the, tri- the so-called triad. Though The number of those weapons is uh, limited by a treaty we have with the Russians, a treaty that's going to expire soon, but nonetheless a treaty. In Russia, it's pretty much the same. They have long-range missiles, they have bombers, and they have submarines. Now, these, again, these are what we would know as strategic weapons. They're weapons that are generally designed to be employed against your opponent's homeland. Strategic bases, even cities, God forbid, could be these targets of these weapons. Now, tactical nuclear weapons are designed to be used on the battlefield to affect formations, battalions, divisions, units that are moving and change the calculus of what's going on in the battlefield. Theoretically, they are smaller weapons than the bigger strategic weapons, although that's not entirely true anymore. The United States once maintained an arsenal of thousands of tactical nuclear weapons. At the end of the Cold War, we divested the vast majority of those weapons. We had weapons that could be fired from artillery pieces. We had weapons that could be fired with a variety of short and middle, uh, short and medium-range missiles. We had nuclear depth charges. We had nuclear anti-submarine weapons. We did, did away with all of those weapons at the end of the Cold War. And we kept today about 300 gravity-delivered uh, airplane, d- flown and dropped from an airplane, B-61 nuclear weapons. Those are the only tactical nuclear weapons that the United States possesses. Russia did not divest itself of its tactical nuclear weapon capability. And today they have between 2,000 perhaps as many as 4,000 tactical nuclear weapons. I don't know the exact count, but it's certainly in excess of 2,000. And these are weapons that they never they never chose to divest. They can be used on the battlefield. They can be used at sea. They can be used in the air. And they also have the delivery systems to go with these weapons. Now, they're not covered by any strategic arms uh, limitation agreement with the Russians because it fell beneath the level <laughs> of strategic arms talks. So, What we have right now is President Putin has a wide variety of nuclear weapons, a a vast menu of options, if you will, that he can actually choose to employ should he elect to do so. Now, the, the reason that becomes important is 
the war in Ukraine is going bad for Russia. It was an aggressive war. He needed to conquer Ukraine in order to have some form of victory. Uh, that's not turning out to be the case. It's turning into a long stalemate with significant reverses for Russia. So the danger that we enter now, Tad, is that as we enter this period and President Putin seeks to change what's going on in the battlefield, his ability to do so with his conventional forces is increasingly limited. He's beginning to run out of things he can do, which makes the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons either on the battlefield or as a signal to us of his intent more likely. It's a very dangerous phase. And as the Russians are you know, facing those defeats on the battlefield, where in Russian strategy do these tactical nuclear weapons play a part? And then how does that compare to U.S. strategy? Sure. So the Russians have always uh, embraced nuclear weapons, I think, with a more pragmatic and cold-eyed perspective than we have here in the United States. Um, I think they, they see it really as just another weapon to be used, despite their public pronouncements to the opposite. In fact, there's a great article that was published in 1977 called why the Soviet Union thinks it can fight and win a nuclear war by a guy named Richard Pipes that I would recommend uh, I would recommend to anyone who wants to understand the continuity in strategic nuclear strategic and tactical nuclear thinking in Russia from the Soviet days until today and that article in 1977 I would argue is as valid today as it was the day that it was written and it's worth it's worth reading it's widely available out there so the Russians tend to think about weapons as things they can use nuclear weapons as things they can use doesn't mean they want to use them and of course they have never used them mm-hmm. in warfare now on the other side the united states first of all we divested ourselves of most of our tactical nuclear weapons and we bear a unique burden because we're the only nation to actually employ nuclear weapons against other people and we did it to end japan's uh, part of the, the second world war and i would argue we saved many lives by doing that but nonetheless that's been a moral burden that we have carried ever sure. since then so we tend to be far more circumspect in our thinking about using nuclear weapons, particularly on the battlefield, although that did not stop us in the, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s from using tactical nuclear weapons as a counterweight against conventional Russian superiority in Europe during those dark, dangerous days of the Cold War. And in fact, then we felt the Russians had conventional overmatch, and we felt that we would need to use tactical nuclear weapons to give NATO a chance to defend itself should the Russians attack. In a way, the coin has turned to the other side now. We now have clear conventional superiority in Europe, the United States and our NATO allies, and Russia is the side that's now turning to nuclear weapons as a way to level the playing field. What has kept Russia and other countries from using nuclear weapons? The nuclear powers have went to war with non-nuclear powers throughout history, Russia and Ukraine being the most recent one. What, what has kept them from using them? Well, at the strategic level, uh, it's, it's, it's deterrence. It's deterrence theory. The United States and, and the Soviet Union and, and now Russia both have the capability to essentially destroy the other country, the only two nations in the world that have that capability. But both sides have recognized that and have stayed very clear of uh, paths or actions that would tend to bring them into direct conflict where the possibility of the employment of these weapons might occur. And it's required great restraint on both sides. So at the strategic level, we operate under a rough a rough theory of deterrence. Right. At, the, at, the, at the use of tactical weapons, however, is I, I would argue, and it's a little murkier here, again, you get into existential issues. To use a nuclear weapon on the battlefield is going to bring down the ire of the rest of the world on you. So it would best be a very important thing should you choose to do that. And 
I'll give you an example. The Russian invasion of Afghanistan, certainly not important enough to consider the use of tactical nuclear weapons. The United States, at, at different times, considered the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam and in Korea, chose not to do that for the same reason. The stakes were not high enough, and the risk of escalation was very great, so we chose not to use nuclear weapons. Now, why Ukraine, and why might Ukraine be more dangerous? Because unlike Afghanistan for the Russians, unlike uh Vietnam and Korea for the United States, Russia's perspective is that Ukraine is an existential issue. And when I say Russia's perspective, mm-hmm. I'm talking about one man's perspective because there's only one person in Russia that's calling the shots and that's making decisions, and that's Vladimir Putin. That's why the danger, I think, of a use of nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, is higher now than it might otherwise be because he's identified this as a critical core issue for Russia, and he has, his forces are behaving poorly. Right. Uh, on, on the ground. He himself has been threatened in terms of preservation of his mm-hmm. regime. Yep. And of course, self-preservation is the highest goal of all totalitarian regimes. And for him, is preservation of Vladimir Putin. So I think that's why we're at a stage where the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons is greater than it's been at any time, really, in my experience. It is interesting because a lot of the, particularly European allies, are wondering what happens if Ukraine does start to win and it pushes that line for being existential threat. So when do you think it kind of crosses? Is it when Ukraine crosses a Russian border somewhere as an invasion that pushes it to that limit where Putin might use a nuclear weapon? I certainly think an an invasion of Russia would would cross that line. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's much risk of that occurring. Uh, I think Ukraine is smart. I think the Ukrainian leadership is smart enough to realize that would be crossing the Rubicon in a huge way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Ukraine Ukraine is going to be satisfied with ejecting Russia from territory that Russia has illegally seized. Now, the, the, the danger will be how, how important does Russia view that territory, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, that they have that they have seized. Well, and, and that's part of the idea that Russia annexed those territories, so they're trying to claim that it is Russian territory. So there's this murky, you know, uh, idea of it, what what where does Russian territory end and begin? You know, you're absolutely right, although I think um, even Vladimir Putin has to recognize that the rest of the world uh, does not agree with that annexation. That's correct. I don't think too many people recognized in general. Uh, so w- what can the West do then to make sure and deter Putin from using? I weapons? think our messaging needs to be clear and unambiguous. He needs to know that there will be consequences should he choose to act in such an extraordinarily reckless manner as to employ a nuclear weapon. And, and Chad, I need to be clear. I don't think that uh, I'm guessing he would not choose to use it against a military target initially. I think he would choose to use do what we would call a demonstration shot. Maybe a shot in over a sh- a detonation somewhere over Russia. Maybe something high in the atmosphere um, that would say, "Look, I'm you. I'm I'm displaying a nuclear weapon, a nuclear capability, because you're not listening to me. Now you need to listen to me." So I think that's a possibility because what he wants to do is he wants to make it hard for us to gain international coherence in responding to this, and so that's why. On our side, it's important that we work very hard to maintain the unity of NATO mm-hmm. and the other nations that are allied with us against this Russian, uh, the provocation of the Russian attack into Crimea. So we want to we want to we want to maintain alliance unity. We want to maintain coherence in our political and diplomatic goals. He wants to chip away at that sure. by using it. It goes back to an old theory that we've heard before uh, that the Russians are fond of and that Putin is personally fond of. You escalate to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. If you get in trouble. You raise the stakes so the person that's sitting across the table from you finds the game too rich and he backs away. And that's really 
what nuclear weapons give him the ability to do. So let's say that deterrence fails. He does a smoking uh, warning shot, and it still does not does not get the desired effects. And he ends up using a nuclear weapon on on the battlefield somehow yeah. in Ukraine. So what, what would that look like? I think our response would be very different to a demonstration shot, which mm-hmm. in which no lives were lost, and then a, then a weapon employed on the battlefield. My guess is we will work very hard to not go tit for tat here. Sure. I don't think we want to start up the nuclear escalation ladder. I think we would work very hard to find things we can do, and there are things that we can do uh, that would not require the use of a nuclear weapon in response. And I, I think that's sound policy. I think it's great policy uh, to try to avoid that. But, you know, really, uh, a lot comes down to how aggressive and how reckless Vladimir Putin is going to be himself. Well, you keep making these threats about using them on the battlefield, but would they really turn the tide, do you believe, uh, in the current struggle? Well, nuclear weapons can bring great destruction to the battlefield. I've been trained in their use, Mm -hmm. uh, but they are a uh, a dual-edged sword. They're a danger to the attacker as well. A lot comes down to prevailing winds. Where's the fallout going? Right. Which direction is it going? So that you know, we used to spend lots of time looking at this in Europe because we were under the possible under the contingency of possibly having to employ nuclear weapons in the defense of Europe. So uh, he'll, you'd want to look at the, what we call the effective downwinds. Sure. Yeah. Where's the fallout going to go with that? And so that's a that's a pretty difficult technical uh, subject to get into. Um, the Russians, I would wager, have looked hard at it. Hopefully, we're now reengaged in studying that as well. Sure. Do you think there's a winner if there is a nuclear conflict? Is that a possibility? I think our theory would be a, a nuclear exchange of any kind is a no-win situation. Right. I am not certain that that is viewed the same way uh, in Russian theory, Russian practice, and uh, in Russian history. Right. So with that ominous note, uh, one last question for you, General. Uh, of, of two major movies that feature nuclear weapons, Dr. Strangelove or Oppenheimer, which one do you think has the biggest impact? Well, those are two great movies. But let me offer you a third movie sure, that please. anyone who wants to talk about nuclear war should see. You should watch uh, On the Beach. On the Beach. Which okay. is a great film starring Gregory Peck, filmed in the early 1960s uh, from the novel of the same name by a British author named Neville Shute. And it's a uh, anyone who thinks lightly about nuclear war <laughs> should watch On the Beach because it's a story about the end of the world as a result of a nuclear war. And it's a very stark, compelling drama, and it's worth watching. Um, I found Oppenheimer to be a very uh, a very good a very good movie and I had a lot of time to think about it during its three hour and nineteen minute run. <laughs> That's a commitment. Uh, and I and I but I enjoyed it. Doctor Strange Love is very good. But you know there's another movie out there too, Failsafe, right. which is a uh, another excellent movie that came out about the same time as Doctor Strange Love, but was eclipsed by Doctor Strange Love because of the dark humor that Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick employed in that movie. So I mean they're all they're all good movies. They're all worth watching and. And, uh, and what they do is they bring a they you know they bring an era uh, they they really bring home the consequences of using nuclear weapons, and that's an important that's an important thing because the American people I believe are very disconnected from that because they've sort of been tucked away. Nobody wants to think about them. Well, you know they're there and they need to be thought about. And we're entering an era where I think the possibility of their use is perhaps greater than it's ever been. Right. It's certainly been a long time since students had to hide under the desk during a bomb That's drill. correct. That's right. correct. The old duck and cover movies. Indeed. Well, uh, thank you so much, General. We appreciate your time. Ted, thanks a lot. And we'd like to thank our audience for joining us. This has been the first episode of What's Really Happening, hosted by GNSI at the University of South Florida. 
In our next episode, we'll talk about the National Guard's state partnership program and what that means for strategic competition. Thank you.